right, open your Bible to Judges chapter 6. I'm so excited for this. I hope you guys are ready. Here in Judges chapter 6, we find one of, I think, one of the most famous stories of the Old Testament. When I was a kid, like a young, young kid, uh, my family gave me a series of cassette tapes with Bible stories on them. And this was one of my favorite tapes. Man, I burned this tape out. I love the story of Gideon. I don't know what it is. I think it's that, that underdog fan in me. Um, I love this story of these 300 people winning this massive victory over this incredible army. It's something that's always grabbed me, and, and God's brought me back to this story time and time again in my life, and I'm so thrilled to finally get to dive in to a series about this. Um, here we find two chapters, really, and just a, a piece of chapter 8 of this account of this incredible victory that God won. And, and we're going to see throughout the two chapters of Judges 6 and 7 and, and a little bit of chapter 8, we're going to pull out specific things that I believe apply to our lives today, uh, apply to where we're at, apply to what God has called us to do and who he's called us to be as he won this incredible victory through these men. So just to let you know a little bit about where we're going in this series. Next week and in week three, we're going to spend two weeks looking at at the man behind the 300. We're going to look specifically at Gideon and specifically at the calling of Gideon, what God said to Gideon, what God had to do in Gideon to prepare him to lead this army. So we're going to look at, at the man behind God's 300. After that, in week four, we're going to look at the victory of the 300. Some of you kind of already know how this ends, and I'm not going to save spoilers. They win, okay? Uh, so that's, that's the good thing, but we're going to look at the details and the specifics of how God won the victory and what that victory means for us. And then in week five, we're going to do something maybe a little different. If you're really familiar with this story like I am, this might be the part of the story that you've never been exposed to before. In fact, I only really saw this myself here in the last two years. But there's kind of a, an addendum. There's kind of a, a bonus coverage. There's an after party in Judges chapter 8 after the victory that I think speaks very, very deeply uh, to, to what we go through in so many of life's challenges and even as we win our victories that God has for us. And so we're going to see after the victory in, in week 5, the last week of June. So throughout this month, we're going to be focusing in on this story. Here's what I want to challenge you to do. Man, if you consider City Church home, if you consider me your pastor, here's my challenge to you. Read Judges 6, 7, and 8 this week. Man, in your own personal time with God, set aside time to read this story for yourself. Because my greatest fear would be that you would hear God's voice through me, but not hear his voice for yourself. See, I think when you get into this story for yourself, there's going to be so much that leaps off the page at you, just as it has leaped off the page at me. And I would so much rather the Holy Spirit speak to you directly than having to speak to you through me. And I'm honored for the opportunity for him to speak through me. And I do believe he will speak through me this series. I believe if you lean in and you take notes and you bring your Bible and you expect God to speak to you, I believe he's going to speak to you. But I believe that he can speak to you in your bedroom. He can speak to you in your vehicle. He can speak to you wherever it is where it's just you and him. And I believe that he wants to. So that's my encouragement. Today we're going to look in part one at the creation, the formation of God's 300. We're actually going to start in the middle of the story, which is kind of a weird spot to start. But I think it's so essential to the theme that we're going through. Obviously, we are theming this off of a movie from 2007 
called 300. And I know some of you have seen that movie. I want to make sure we tie this together very clearly. So, so we'll give you some backstory. The story 300 was actually a graphic novel written by a guy named Arthur Miller. And Arthur Miller took this story uh, and, and he wrote this novel and, and it was very popular and they made a movie based off of it. But the story was inspired by an actual historical battle. And the historical battle that I was inspired by, and when I say inspired, if you ever see that phrase in a movie like inspired by true events, that means there's like a little, little piece of truth in it and a whole lot of Hollywood, okay? So this story is inspired by true events, that there was an actual battle and there was kind of 300 Spartans and that's pretty much it. Uh, but the, the, there was an actual battle that happened and so I had to research going into this, what really happened? And so it's called a battle of Thermopylae. And Thermopylae was a, a town, is a location on the Greek coast. And, and what was going on is Persia was invading Greece. Persia wanted to come in with, with this massive army. In fact, historians tell us the army was anywhere from 100,000 to 150,000. And there's some debate between the historians. And so they're coming in and they're going to invade Greece. And so the king of Persia, whose name is Xerxes, he sends word to the Greek king of Sparta. The king of Sparta, whose name is actually Leonidas. Leonidas in the movie is the guy, you know, this is Sparta. And he has like this cartoon body and he's like the most ripped man alive. And that's, you know, uh, so don't lust, ladies. Uh, take your mind somewhere else. Uh, but th that's, that's Leonidas. He really existed and he really gets an emissary who comes to him from Xerxes. And Xerxes makes him an offer. And Xerxes says, we're coming in and we're going to wipe you out. But we'd rather be friends. So let us be friends. We want to be friends of Greece. You can be friends of Persia. And all you have to do is give us all your land, and we'll give you somewhere else to live. We won't kill any of you. We won't harm any of you. We won't enslave any of you. But we want Greece. And if you do that, everybody lives. And so Leonidas, of course, not a big fan of that plan. And they reject it, and they say no, and, and the battle ensues. And so Persia invades. They invade with their navy. They invade with their army. And the Battle of Thermopylae is the place where the, the Persian army and the Greek army first meet. And so Greek came up with this Greece came up with this plan. There's this narrow mountain pass in Thermopylae where it's very difficult to get through. In fact, the history tells us that the pass itself is just about the width of a modern-day interstate. So we're, we're not talking about a very large path of land at all. And that's the only place that you could get through if you were going to march up into Greece. You had to come through this one very narrow point. And so the Persians come to this point and they bring their massive army and Leonidas leads his army out to battle. And so how many people do you think Leonidas had? Suckers. Not 300. I know that's the obvious answer. He had 300 Spartans, but he actually had a, an army of around 7,000 Greeks. Uh, and so there was Greeks from different cities and different city-states who came. And so there were 7,000 of them there to face off against this, this army of over 100,000. And so they, they line up side by side, kind of as you can imagine uh, in the film. In fact, go ahead and put up that next background for it. Yeah, that's the one. Okay, yeah. Kind of like you see there. This is fairly accurate. Uh, and they dig in their heels, and you're not going to get past us. And so they begin to win this incredible battle. These 7,000 men against 100,000 plus of the enemy, they actually start to win. The Greeks, uh, in fact, history tells us that this is one of the greatest evidences of the power of defending your home. The, the power of motivation that even though Persia wanted the Greeks' land, they didn't want it as bad as the Greeks did. 
And so the Greeks were defending what mattered most to them, and they were putting everything on the line, and they were winning. And they began to see there's actually a chance that we're going to drive these Persians off with just this small army of 7,000. But then there's a traitor who comes in, and the traitor uh, goes over to the Persian side, and he says, hey, I want to give you some information in, in exchange for you taking care of me. And if you'll take care of me, I'm going to let you know there's a little back trail that you can take. And this little back trail will bring you back to the opposite side of this path. And you can get on the other side of Leonidas' army. And you can surround him and outflank him and wipe him out. And so sure enough, that's what, ha that's what happens. Leonidas gets word that the Persians have crossed over behind them. And he decides, I'm, I'm going to save as many of my men as I can. So he begins to send his Greeks out. He begins to protect them and say, okay, you go back to your homeland. We're going to stay here. And so the 7,000 dwindles, there's your hidden word, down from 7,000. Uh, and it doesn't get quite to 300. He keeps his 300 Spartans. He kept, keeps 700 uh, thespians, 700 actors, not actors, but actually from a city called Thespian, Greece, uh, and about 300 others. Somewhere between 1,500 and 2,000 total Greeks make the last stand. And the last stand is this famous, famous point in history. The whole battle took about three days, the last stand happened on one day, but they got wiped out. They got annihilated. They lost. They gained fame and notoriety. They're legendary, but they lost. But what actually happened is they took enough of a chunk out of the Persians in this battle that even though the Greeks lost this battle, they ended up winning the war. And they were able to drive the Persians back to where they're from, which is modern-day Iran, and Greece was able to hold their homeland. So why are we building a series off of this. Well, obviously, the, the movie, the story is known as 300 because there were the 300 Spartans. And in Scripture, we see God with an army of 300 right here in the story of Gideon. I thought, what, a, what an incredible compare and contrast opportunity of this army that is legendary, both in, both in history and now in pop culture, for making this stand, even though they lost but God had 300 who were greater underdogs, who faced greater challenges, and God won both the battle, battle and the war through his 300. So let's get into our story of what I would call God's 300 today. Just to give you a little bit of context of what's going on here. Uh, there's this Midianites, are this, uh, this neighboring tribe to the Israelites. And they begin to see that the Israelites were weak. You see, in, in the book of Judges, we kind of see this up and down, mostly down, but little bits of up where they're serving God, they're protected, they're, they're in a good place, and then they rebel against God and they serve other gods, they worship other gods, and things go bad. And so the Midianites come in at one of these moments when the Israelites are worshiping false gods. They're worshiping idols, they're bowing down and giving their life to these gods of wood and stone and rejecting the God who brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And the Midianites seize the opportunity, they see that the Israelites are weak. And so they come in to oppress them. And they come in, and every year at harvest season, they'll come in and they'll steal their crops. They'll steal the wheat harvest. They'll steal the grape harvest. They'll steal everything that's keeping the Israelites alive. So the Israelites are starving. They're terrified. They're oppressed. They feel like we have no hope. And notice, no one is standing up to the Midianites. No one is organizing an army. No one is saying, we need to stop this. And so in the middle of this, there's this guy named Gideon. And Gideon is the bravest warrior in all the land. No. 
Gideon is the biggest coward in all the land. He's the most scared. In fact, he is slinking around, hiding. He's threshing grapes uh, in, in a cellar. Uh, and what you are, excuse me, threshing wheat in a wine cellar. And if you knew anything about threshing wheat, you would go up on the, the biggest hill and you'd let the wheat separate from the shaft in the wind. But he's going down in the wine cellar because he doesn't want any of the Midianites to see him. He's terrified. And in the midst of this terror, God shows up uh, through his messenger, this angel who may or may not have been Jesus. Side note, we'll get to that later in the series and we'll deal with that. Uh, and, and he begins to speak to Gideon. He says, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's like, who? Like, you're not... Clearly not talking to me. I'm the least in my family. My family's the worst family in all of Israel. You look and you got the wrong guy, God. God says, no, I'm with you. And I'm calling you to deliver your people from the oppression of the Midianites. And so Gideon puts God through a series of tests. Is this really you, God? Are you really on my side? Did you really pick the right guy? And God confirms again and again, you're the one. You're the one. You're the one. You're the one that I want. You're the one that I'm going to use. And so God raises Gideon up, and Gideon's faith begins to raise. And so God gives him a first project. And his first project is not to go take out the Midianites. His first project is to deal with Israel. And so the first thing that Gideon is supposed to do is he's supposed to go into his town, his hometown, and destroy the altar to Baal, this false god that they're worshiping, and this pole that was set up to worship this goddess named Asherah. And so Gideon says, okay, God, I'll do it, but I'm doing it at night. And so he grabs 10 servants, and they sneak in in the middle of the night, and they destroy the Baal, and they destroy the Asherah, and you can just see Gideon praying, God, please don't let him know it's me. Please don't let him know it's me. Please don't let him know it's me. But sure enough, they figured out that it's Gideon, and they're going to go for Gideon. They're going to kill Gideon in defense of Baal. This is how committed they are to this false god. This is how sold out they are to their idolatry. They're going to kill someone in the name of Baal. And all of a sudden, Gideon's dad steps up and he says, Baal's so great, he can take care of himself. Let Baal contend with him. And the town decides, you know what, that's a good strategy. Baal's going to strike him down for himself. And so they change Gideon's name to Jerob Baal. When Jerob Baal means let Baal contend. Basically, it's a curse that's been placed on Gideon's head. Baal's going to take you out. Nobody wants to be around him because they all think this is going to happen. But word begins to spread of Gideon's courage. Word begins to spread that there's someone who's willing to stand up for God. You see, Gideon had to first take a stand for the true God in Israel before the true God could let him take a stand outside of Israel to deliver the people. You see, judgment always starts in the house of God. Before God can ever take us out to make a difference in, a wor- in the world, he has to fix us first. And so Gideon had to go to the Israelites first of all. And then God says, okay, now it's time to spread the word. So he starts sending out the word, and this is where we pick up the story. In Judges chapter 6, verse 34 today, it says, Now all the Midianites and Malachites, or excuse me, verse 33, and other eastern peoples joined forces and crossed over the Jordan and camped in the valley of Jezreel. So now it's not just the Midianites, and now they're not just coming in and oppressing. They're camping in Israel with the neighboring tribes, the Amalekites, and a bunch of others. Historians tell us around 135,000 of the enemy have camped in Israel. This is the scene. They are coming and they're going to wipe Israel out. They are taking the promised land back from God's people. Verse 34, then the spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon and he blew a trumpet summoning the Abizarites to follow him. 
He sent messengers throughout Manasseh, calling them to arms. Manasseh is one of the tribes of Israel. And also into Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, so that they too went up to meet him. So he begins sending out messengers to four tribes, the four neighboring tribes of the twelve. And he says, we're going to kick these dudes butt. God has spoken to me, and we're taking them out. And I need every able-bodied man. It's like our, like our building project, right? Like I need every dude who's available this weekend. Come on. Come on, many hands make light work. We're going to do this together. The bigger army we can get, the greater the victory God can give us. He's rallying and recruiting every single individual he can get. And it's crazy what happens overnight. Overnight, 32,000 people show up. Why do they show up? Well, number one, they're fed up with the Midianites. But number two, they were starved for spirit-led leadership. They were starved for somebody who would say, you know what, God is with me, come and follow me. And I believe that there's so many things that we can't relate to. We can't relate to the Midianite oppression. We can't probably relate to our family and all of the people near us worshiping false gods. We can't relate to so much of this. But I believe that our culture is just like that. That people today are starved for spirit-led leadership. That people today are starved for somebody in the workplace, somebody on the campus, Kid City, for somebody wherever you happen to be in the neighborhood who rises up and says, you know what, I'm following God with everything. And if you want to follow him too, come with me because we're going to take over. Because we're going to do what God's called us to do and we're going to do it together. And at the drop of a hat in a world with no Twitter and no Facebook and no cell phones and no text messaging and no email, 32,000 people arrive ready to take up arms. Why? Because they were starved for someone worth following. Hear me, church. If you will be the spirit-led leader in whatever circle God has placed you in, people will jump on board to follow you. People will come out of the woodwork to say, I want to get behind what you're doing. I want to go where you're going because I see there's something different. And Gideon made one stand for God with 10 people. And within 24 hours, he's got 32,000 followers. Because people are starved for a spirit-led leader worth following. When you step out in faith, inspired by the Holy Spirit to do something you cannot possibly accomplish on your own, God will bring the people to facilitate the vision. So from these four tribes of Israel, Gideon rallies the troops. Judges chapter 7, verse 1 says, Early in the morning, Jerob, Baal, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, You have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands. It's like, no, I'm hearing you wrong, God. We don't have enough men. We got to go to the, we just, we just hit four tribes. We got eight other tribes to recruit from. And they're the bigger tribes. They're the more powerful tribes. We can probably get to 100,000, 150,000, God. Man, we're, we're going to do something. But God says, no, you got too many. You know, many times God's going to tell you exactly the opposite of what you expect him to say. Many times God's going to tell you exactly the, the complete black and white polar opposite from what you're expecting. See, because God's ways are different than our ways. They're higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. He has different and greater purposes than we do. And so when those moments happen where God says something and you're like, okay, I'm expecting here and you're telling me to go here, we boldly obey the word of the Lord. And watch Gideon's bold obedience take place 
God says, you have too many men for me to deliver Midian into their hands in order that Israel may not boast against me that her own strength has saved her. Announce now to the people, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 left while 10,000 remained. In one moment with one declaration, two-thirds of the army peaced out. Now, this is the worst military tactic in history. If you're going into any battle where you could die, let alone the fact that you're outnumbered at this point six to one, if you're going into any battle where you could die, there's a voice inside of you that says, this might not be a good idea. There's a voice inside you that says, I'm a little bit terrified right now. So when Gideon says this, the amazing thing is not that 22,000 left, it's that 10,000 remain. It's like, they were probably crazy. Like, there was probably something wrong with the 10,000 who stayed back. Either that or they were men of incredible, incredible faith. But you see, incredible faith does not just mean that we don't ever have any fear. It means that we step out in spite of the fear that we have. And so when I read this, I'm shocked that 10,000 people said, I'm still with you, Gideon. I'm not afraid. I think probably some of them were liars. But the Bible doesn't tell us. But why would you do this? Why would you thin the ranks like this? You see, there's something very unique about the character of God. God is generous in all things. God is giving and sharing. He is willing to share with us all that he is. He will give us his power. He will give us his resource. He will give us his family. He will even shed his blood for us. Every aspect of who God is, he is constantly giving and constantly giving and constantly giving and constantly giving and constantly sharing and bringing others in and sharing. But there's one thing that God says he will not share. God says, I will not share my glory. You can have everything else. You can wear my name. You can have You can have my my provision. You can have my inheritance. You can come and live with me. You can live in my house, but you cannot have my glory. See, when it comes to the glory of God, God is insanely jealous. He will not share his glory with another. If you go to the very Ten Commandments, the first rules that God laid down, what's the first law he gives? He said, thou shalt have no other gods before me. He's not playing around. And so God says, if you go out with 32,000 men against an army of 135,000 and you win victory because I'm on your side and you are going to win, you're going to think you did it yourselves. You're going to think, man, look at how awesome we are. We took six out for every one of us. Look how strong we are. Look how great we are. And you're going to heap the glory on yourself. And God says, I'm not playing that game. And so God starts cutting out the army. He causes the army to dwindle from 32,000 to 10,000. I'm going to keep on using it. Hallelujah. From 32,000 to 10,000 in one shot. Because God says, I'm not playing with my glory. You can't have it. Now, for us as Americans, we believe in fairness. And we believe in equality. And this kind of is uncomfortable for us if we're really honest. This aspect of God's character that, that he thinks he deserves all the glory, this kind of sits uneasy in our spirit. And here's the best way that I can explain this to you. God's jealousy for his glory is a part of God's grace. And we have to understand this. The reason why God is so intent that he gets the glory and he does not share it with us is simply this. If they got the glory for themselves, 
And they get in trouble again, which if you read Judges, they get in trouble again. Who are they going to turn to in their time of trouble? Themselves. If they think we're the ones who did this, the next time oppression comes in, the next time they walk away from God and things start to hit the fan, they're going to say, you know what, we got this. Look what we did to the Midianites. We can do this on our own. And they're going to run into destruction. And so God's insanely jealous that he gets the credit, not because he wants everyone to bow down before him and look at how great he is. He's insanely jealous that he gets the glory because he loves us so much. And he needs us to see that he's the source. He needs us to know that he's the one who the victory has arisen from. Think of it like this. You're drowning out in the ocean. And someone pulls up in a boat next to you and they throw the life raft out to you, except you're drowning and you can't see it. You're kind of starting to go under. You're on two fingers out of three, right? You got that one more second before. We, that's not really how it works probably, but that's how we all envision it. So, so you're in that moment and the life preserver comes out. And that person in the boat begins to yell at you, look at me, look in my direction. I'm here to rescue you. When that person declares, I'm the one here to rescue you, you're not like, who do you think you are? What is wrong with you? There's so many others who deserve some of the credit here, right? That's stupid. No one would ever consider that. You are grabbing a hold of that life preserver and you're starting to like worship God in a way you've never worshipped him before. Because your life was just spared. And you were just rescued. And when God shares his glory with another, what it does is it causes the dying, the drowning, the lost to look in other directions. And think that they can find rescue there. But there is only one who can rescue. There is only one who can save. There is only one who can bring us from hell into heaven. And he must have the glory so that we can see him clearly. So that the lost can know he's the only one that I can turn to. So God says, no, Israel, you can't do this with 32,000 men. I'm taking your army down. Because I need you to know that it had nothing to do with you. So the next time you get yourself in this situation, because I know you will, I'm the first one you come to. And I'm the only direction you look to. So God, this loving God, this gracious God, chooses not to share his glory with 32,000, but he chooses to pare down the army. Verse 4 says, But the Lord said to Gideon, There's still too many men. Take them down to the water, and I will sit them, sift them there for you. If I say, this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say, this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues like a dog from those who kneel down to drink. 300 men lapped with their hands to their mouths, and all the rest got down on their knees to drink. So we just went from 10,000 to 300. 32,000 to 10,000, 10,000 to 300. The Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that I lapped, or that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the other men go, each to his own place. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites to their tents, but kept the 300, and I love this last little after the comma here, who took over the provisions and the trumpets of the others. So he said, you can go back, but leave your stuff. 
because we still got an army of 135,000. I don't know how God's going to give us victory. So we need every sword. We need every trumpet. We need every piece of armor. We need everything we can get. So now there's 300 dudes with 10,000 men's worth of armor. I'm not sure exactly how they stored that or exactly how they figured they were going to use it, but I think it's awesome that Gideon was just making sure God had it. Uh, So what do we do with all this? How does this come to modern day, 2014, to your world, to your family, to your sphere? I just want to give you three very, very basic thoughts from this section of the the recruiting, the creation of God's army of 300. First of all, hopefully you've already gotten this point, but I want to make it explicit. Don't touch God's glory. Don't touch his glory. See, I believe that God's going to use you for an incredible victory of some sort. God's going to use you for a victory in your family. God's going to use you for victory in your workplace. God's going to use you for some sort of victory for his kingdom. And when that day comes, don't you dare touch his glory. Matt Redman, one of my favorite songwriters, once wrote this lyric. He said, every blessing you pour out, we turn back to praise. And I think that's a phenomenal mindset for God's people to have. That every time God blesses, every time you get a raise, every time you get a promotion, every time something good happens to you, every time you make a new friend, every time you make progress towards that goal, whatever that goal happens to be, you're turning it back to praise. You're turning it back to praise. You're turning it back to praise. Now, I'm not saying to be weird and obnoxious about this. We've all seen the the guy after the Super Bowl who gets interviewed, and the first thing he says is, man, we just want to thank God for this victory. And it's like, okay, There were probably some Christians on the other team, too. They were probably praying just as hard as you were. Uh, I don't think that God really cares who wins the Super Bowl. I care who wins the Super Bowl. I'm still thrilled about who won the Super Bowl this year. But I don't think God really makes, it doesn't make a difference to him. So what you do is you give God not the credit necessarily for the Super Bowl trophy, but I think you give him the credit for the talent. Man, I'm just, I'm blessed that God gave me this talent to be here. I'm blessed that God gave me this opportunity to have this microphone right now. And I just want to give him the glory that that I'm even in this moment, that I even have a chance to be on a team with these great guys. And you give God the glory. You turn it back to praise in the midst of that in whatever way you can find. Now, don't give God credit for something he doesn't want to be a part of. We've all seen the musician who wins an award, and the first thing they do is thank God. And it's like, I've seen your music video. God didn't do that. Uh, That was not of him, right? Uh, so, again, it's got to be of God to give God the credit for it. But don't touch God's glory. Psalm 115.1, Josh referenced it earlier for you. It says, not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name be the glory because of your love and faithfulness. I don't want it. It's all yours. Years ago, there was a, a really great season going on in the 662, and God was doing some amazing stuff in our youth ministry. And one of our youth leaders... Uh, we were at kind of a party to celebrate some stuff. One of our youth leaders really started to go on about what a great job I was doing and what a great youth pastor I was. And I, I tried to cut them off and say, you know what, it's not me. It's you guys, man. It's this team that God's given us. It's, it's ultimately his work. And, and they kind of got frustrated. They're like, just let us thank you for once. You always do this. You always make it about somebody else. You never take any of the credit. And, and, and I love the, the heart to honor, and I think we should honor one another. I think God, God's word says that, that we should honor each other. Um, but I'm determined I'm not taking credit. Man, if you want to give some honor out to, to the leaders in your ministry, man, if you want to give some honor to, to our worship leaders or to your kid city leader or whoever that might be, I think it's a great idea. If you want to give some honor to your small group leader, do that. 
share that honor. But man, when that honor comes your direction, deflect, deflect, deflect. I don't want any of it. I want him to have it. It's his. Not to us, but to your name be the glory. So first of all, don't touch God's glory. Secondly, thing that we learned from this passage is don't get discouraged when it feels like things are going in the wrong direction. How easy would it have been for Gideon to begin to doubt? We know Gideon wasn't a man of just incredible faith when this story started. How easy would it have been for him to start doing the math? Okay, God, two hours ago I had 32,000 people on my side. Now I have 300 people on my side. Clearly I've missed you somewhere. Clearly I'm not hearing from you like I thought I was. Clearly you're not leading me anymore. Clearly you're trying to sell me out. You just want me to die. Right? Like you just, you just you, you hate me, God. Why do you hate me? Like it had been real easy for Gideon to get in that moment. And I think many times things go the opposite direction that we expect, and it's exactly the hand of God. It's exactly what God is wanting to do. Go back to the the 662. We moved from South Haven to Olive Branch in the summer of 2008. And before we moved, we were averaging around 75 students every Wednesday night, and our youth ministry was, was thriving, and we had a basketball court and a game room and a pool table and ping pong table and video games, and it was just this kind of amazing season and and we moved and when we moved we went from 75 students to 15 and we're meeting in one room in a hotel we went from a full band to an acoustic uh and and I just felt like God I don't know if if we can do it again like we we had this incredible thing going and you just ripped it away from us and now we're over here and and the rest of the church is excited for the move and I'm struggling because of what has gone on in our youth ministry and the amazing thing was we went on to eventually, not overnight, but eventually we, we built the youth ministry over on this side of town, around 75 students, with no basketball court, with no game room, with no pool table, with no ping pong table. And those 75 were much more grounded. They were much more connected. They were much more deeply rooted in what God was doing than the 75 in South Haven. Now, there were some amazing students in South Haven. I'm not saying nobody over there was, but there, there was a large percentage that were just kind of there for basketball, just kind of there to hang out. And what I saw was that, that God took us backwards to take us forwards. And maybe you're in a season right now where you're in the backwards, and you feel like, God, you've abandoned me. God, you've left me. If that's you, I want you to hear very clearly, don't get discouraged. Don't grow weary of doing good. You are not at the end of the story. You are at the middle of the story. In any story, we look back where God did something incredible in Scripture. There was some drama. There was some conflict. There was some risk. There was a moment where somebody could have said, you know what? I can't be a part of this. But they pushed through, and God showed up and did something amazing. Don't give up on what God's doing just because you're in a season where things feel like they're going the wrong direction. Last thing I would point to you from this part of our story today is worry less about who's on your side and worry more about whose side you're on. Worry less about who's on your side and worry more about whose side you're on. During the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln very famously was asked a question. The question was, Abraham, President, is God on your side And Abraham Lincoln gave this most amazing answer, this life-changing answer. He says, sir, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. And you see, Gideon knew he was on God's side. 
And so it didn't matter to Gideon whether he had 32,000 to go and defeat the enemy with or whether he had 300 to defeat the enemy with or whether he had 10 servants to go in the middle of the night and tear down an altar because Gideon knew God isn't just on my side. I'm on God's side. And if I'm on God's side, I can't lose. If I'm on God's side, we're going to see victory. And we all say, okay, look, the Bible says if God is for us, who can be against us, right? And it's so true and it's, it's so powerful. But I don't think that's the question anymore. I think God is for us. I think God is for his people. I think God is for us when we're for God. And the greatest question for God's people today is not is God for you. The greatest question is are you for him? And if you're for him, if you're committed to his call, his plan, his purpose for your life, if you're committed to live set apart, if you're committed to step out in faith no matter what crazy thing he calls you to, when he calls you to take out an army of 135,000 with 300 people and you say, okay, God, let's go. I know you can do this. If you have that type of faith, you will never question, is God on my side? And you'll not worry about the numbers that are going with you. Because I love having people with me. I love having people on my side. I'm a people person. I thrive in crowds. The bigger the crowd, the more people are at an event, the more hyped up I get. And we go to conferences, and, and my energy level, like, goes through the roof. And my wife's like, calm down. You're like a little kid. Like, relax. It's okay. But I, 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 I get energized off of that. But it's not really about who's with me. The real question is, who am I with? And if I'm with God, it doesn't matter. I'm going to win. And so I'd encourage you to, to, to not be so concerned about who's still in the battle with you, who's still pushing forward with you. Yes, we, we want to love our friends and we want to reach out to our friends. And if we see them start to fall off, we need to go after them. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying don't let it affect you. If somebody else decides, you know what, this is the point I get off the train. This is the point that I stop going forward. If, if people begin to turn and walk away from the call of God on their life, that has nothing to do with what God can do with you. It does not limit your potential one bit, whether there's 32,000 or 300 or 300 or two next to you. The only thing that determines your destiny is, is God, are you on God's side? And as long as you know you're on God's side, God's going to do something amazing through you. Amen? Amen. Don't touch God's glory. Don't get discouraged when it seems like things are going in the wrong direction, but you know you're doing the right thing. And don't worry so much about who's on your side. Worry about whose side you're on. Let's pray.